Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. Super excited to have all you guys here, man. It's Friday, April 30th, the end of April already, guys. Uh, happy to have all you guys here. Hopefully, you got a chance to tune into the episode I released earlier today with Eleanor Twedell. She wrote a book called Why Losing Your Job Could Be the Best Thing That Ever Happened to You. Uh, it's pretty damn good book. I highly recommend checking it out. Listen to the interview. If you've struggling with with the you know layoffs during this covid year i think this episode would be a huge benefit to get your mindset right um definitely go check that out what's up we got ben taylor back ben taylor man how's it going eric vin's in the house vivian richard how's it going everyone ben how you been great dude so, i've been living on a plane i know man i was gonna say i've seen you've been hopping around lately where you been going uh DC, Boston, Boston. I'm going to be in San Francisco all week next week, Tucson Wednesday, back to San Francisco. It's like things are getting back to normal. Well, yeah. I, I don't know if that's ever normal, but um, I've got my vaccine. So nice. Yeah, I'll be getting my vaccination at some point in the next month. They're doing it. Um, I don't know how they're doing it in the rest of the world, but here in Winnipeg, at least they're doing it by uh, geographic neighborhood and location so if you're above a certain age in this particular neighborhood or if you work in certain industries you get priority to go get vaccinated um and now just people like me who just stay home all day um are eligible to get vaccinated so i am i'm back here we got we got vivian vivian how's it going vivian do you want to kick us off with the question um i don't have anything right now but <laughs> i'll think about it <laughs> all right right on greg how's it going man hey well i'm super excited to have all you guys here uh my favorite part of the of the week really and like ben mentioned when we get back to the new normal i wonder will you guys still hang around every friday when life gets back to normal we can go to an actual pub and do actual happy hour hopefully you guys are still around oh man i've been doing a ton of drinking lately that's awesome going to uh, uh, like staying is, out till one in the morning bar hopping in boston what is your your drink of choice um so i do all the classics but I've had so much fun. You go to like a really nice restaurant and you tell them I have it. I've had every normal drink surprise me. And they bring like monkey business or like banana coffee or like I had one with like dry ice in it. And so my new favorite thing is to go out to a nice restaurant and say, bring me a drink that'll surprise these people. Like and that. yeah, I like that. When I go I, to cocktail restaurants, that's usually my orders. It's like, yeah, just give me whatever. Just surprise. Oh yeah. I think an espresso martini is like a classic for me. I really like that. Um, or like a Mexican mule. Nice. I haven't had a Mexican mule before. That sounds very interesting i've had the moscow meal i'm assuming this is just with tequila and yeah it's a little sweeter the tequila and maybe those our i was with our cro and he's uh, he's scottish and he was like scotch 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 and i was like this is awful yeah man i can't drink and, scotch no yeah and i feel bad because i think like you don't say that to a scottishman you know, yeah. I guess that'd be like making fun of an irishman's like guinness you like this guinness is awful and that'd probably offend them no, it's not a good move. But having having some some craft beer here, this is a vegan coconut milkshake IPA. Oh yeah, quite, quite See, why hasn't someone started a podcast called like Drunk Data Science? Um, I mean, that's what Fridays are, at least for me. I hope I hope I can make it the same for you guys. Uh, but yeah, man, super excited to have all you guys here. If you guys have any questions whatsoever, I'm happy to start taking questions. Greg, is that I, got, I got one. Let's go for it, man. So I was just I was just thinking uh, we, we're talking a lot about the uh, AI data science kind of tipping down. W what is the driver of that, and when when do you guys think data science AI won't be as exciting to talk about anymore? And what what would drive that uh, uh, you know 
irrelevance maybe or boredom uh, will, of the subject i will tell you what will like it it's not irrelevance that will i think it's just it'll become so relevant that it'll become an essential part of everyone's job right yeah everyone will have to use data and interface with databases or do some type of coding in order to be really truly successful in their job so i think it's going to come to a point where maybe you know, everyone's like a data analyst at, at some point right in, in some way mm-hmm. shape or form um but you know, let's let's hear from from Ben on this and, and see what you think. Yeah, I think it's abstracting away. I, I love talking to people to say, "Hey, all this used to be hard." So I had a call today with um, I need to look up the name of the company. Is this Edge Device Company where it automatically builds out like a Kubernetes cluster for you? And so you literally just keep adding more Edge nodes, and it just magically works. And if you lose a node, and I was I was reminded like at the hedge fund when we had six hundred GPUs, the cluster is like I spent twenty percent of my time doing cluster management, and so like everything's getting easier. The access is getting bigger where subject matter experts, business analysts, so that'll trickle down to like the developers. And there's a floor to this pyramid and the floor is everyone. The floor is like literally your mom, my mom will do something that would intimidate a lot of the people on the call today. And how did she do it? She had a conversation with her house. But when you actually understand what she did in the next five or 10 years, you'd be like, oh, that used to be hard. And so I think that's a theme in data science. Like look at some of the stuff that people are doing today. That used to be hard. Like you go back 10 years, like what is it? Like the Twitter clone in five minutes that people are so proud of. And you're like, oh, that was cool eight years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, so. in, inverting like a 10 by 10 matrix was probably hard. <laughs> and right, and <laughs> exactly. That. Well, a well, huge props to Greg at Amazon. Like, man, when that Lambdas shit came out, oh my gosh. Like you start playing with Lambdas, it was magic. Like, so Amazon, Amazon has done a fantastic job with leaning in hard on the future. And so they keep coming up with these brilliant tools like serverless and other things where like, like, are you kidding me? Like so, something that should have been, something that used to be hard is now trivial. Vin, what do you think? And if anybody else would like to um, chip in on this question, please either send me a message or give me a, um, a, a raised hand. But Vin, let's hear from you. I think the next, like the next hype thing is quantum. I've seen a couple of companies take a stab at starting up a hype cycle on quantum computing and just hasn't hasn't really taken hold yet. But as soon as you start seeing quantum computing, quantum internet, uh, even quantum storage, if they just get that working, you'll start hearing that take over the hype cycle a lot. And data science will kind of be the thing that gets better because of, according to the, you know, the thought leaders and influencers and futurists. And I think we're only about a year away from that. I don't think we really have too much time before people start talking about quantum computing and start talking about blockchain getting broken by quantum computing, which is going to be a huge, huge debate. You know, is it or isn't it going to survive? And that's another one that you're going to hear that'll be huge. I think right now we're we're sitting on top of data science, machine learning and AI just because nothing else that exciting has come out yet. But, you know, it's it's coming. There, there's a couple of other topics that might be, they sound more mundane, but they might be more interesting coming up. I mean, anytime you talk about 5G, IoT, and you push any sort of machine learning to the edge, you solve a whole lot of problems and that in and of itself. I mean, it's not going to be completely going away from machine learning, but when we get more concerned about devices, more concerned about the edge, then you start talking a little less about machine learning a little bit more again. I mean, you might even shift back to a hardware discussion at that point or who knows, but there's, there's a couple of competitors. I think that this year are going to try to take it down. I love yeah, the point I- to mention. Uh, sorry, I was just going to yeah. geek out real quick. Quantum doesn't make things go faster. It makes things go different. And so like, 
we actually don't even know what these new applications are. And and I didn't come up with this idea. Someone on this podcast was saying like, oh yeah, your deep learning is not going to run faster. It's different. And and I, I think that's yeah. that's like the sideways. I don't know what's coming. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I'm I'm actually in a quantum computing program right now. I'm uh, almost graduating, and uh, I'm interested too in how it can enable machine learning. But what 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 I don't know about it is you might see another 10 years before you could see a, a little chip that has all of these qubits built onto it. That's where you see the, the biggest power. And what I'm interested in, it, and the thing is there are multiple mediums, there are multiple materials that you can use to build a qubit. Um, and what I'm interested in too to, in seeing is when is going to be, when are we going to have the, we're starting to have it, the quantum uh, distribution over the cloud is it going to, is it best to keep it there and uh, democratize it? And then what, another thing that I really love about it is that when it comes to machine learning and the way I understand it is that if you're training a car, for example, about navigating um, or reinforcement learning, right? So again, me trying to use layman terms, you have to train and correct me if I'm wrong. You have to train the car. If it goes straight, uh, is it safe or no? Proceed. If it's no, proceed, et cetera, right? Then you train to go left, then you train to go right. Quantum computing helps you train in all directions at the same time. So you speed it up because now the qubit can be either takes the value of a sphere. It could be anything and infinite possibilities of occurrences inside of a, of a sphere. So it's quite um, nice and a cool concept. It's just that because of so much noise, when you build a platform like quantum uh, chip, uh, you, you have to be able to uh, correct some of that noise and make sure that when a computer makes uh, or a machine makes an inference that uh, the probability of that inference being correct is as high as possible and reliable as possible. So um, definitely interested in that. And it's one thing that excites me and, I, and I'm glad you brought it up, Vin about the future of quantum computing and how we can make everything else better, including machine learning and AI. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about this. So if you guys know anyone um, who's, you know, maybe got a PhD in this stuff or has written or published understandable articles on this topic, let me know. I'd love to get them on the show. Uh, but I'd also recommend there's a course on LinkedIn learning from uh, Jonathan Reichantel, who I interviewed earlier this week for the podcast. He just released a course on quantum computing. So definitely check that out on LinkedIn learning if you got that for free. Um, and there's some some stuff on Amazon. Um, Amazon Prime has the great courses add-in, and that great courses add-in has some really interesting courses on quantum stuff, which um, I've got queued up. I'm excited to to learn more about that. Shout out to our good friend, Akshay. Akshay, you got a job today, my friend. Congratulations. Well, maybe it wasn't today, but uh, you recently just got hired at, at... Tell us about it, man. Tell us about it. Uh, thank you so much, Harpreet. And everybody else. Uh, so I signed the offer today. I got it early this week, but I've accepted an offer with Shopify in their finance team. Um, and thanks to Greg for helping me with the case study last time, because uh, that was one of the interview rounds that I had to go through. Uh, yeah, my role will be a senior auditor, um, and I'll be in charge of helping Shopify build a SOX compliance program for internal controls and risk assessments across different verticals. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's very fascinating what I'm trying in this role. Uh, it relates to something I've done in consulting before. So there is a lot of room for automation, a lot of room for data science. As we know, Shopify thrives on data. Uh, so I'm, I'm super excited to see how that goes. And, uh, 
yeah, we'll see. I'll keep you guys posted as I continue to learn more. Man, congratulations. That's such good news. I'm really, really Thanks. happy for you, man. Super excited for you. Really uh, looking forward to seeing all the wonderful stuff you do in the future, man. Keep it up, dude. That's that's awesome. Uh, everybody join me again and congratulating. Let's see those emojis fire off. All right, guys. Uh, anybody else got any questions that uh, that they have? You're free to take the floor. Otherwise, um, otherwise we can just, you know, chill. Ben, go for it. I've got a question. Um, and I'm curious how people react to this. So when it comes to hiring, you know, you got like junior talent, senior talent, stuff like that. And you have normal job expectations. And so I'm going to be in San Francisco next week, finalizing my budget and headcounts. And one of the roles potentially that could show up is this idea that I just need someone to do whatever the hell I need them to do as fast as I can do it, even if it's impossible. And what I'm trying to get to is just like someone who's young, they're hungry, but they're almost a little crazy. And so I... The idea I was thinking for the role, and and I apologize if people find this like super off-putting, but the thing I was thinking for the role is like post something online and just say, you know, 72 hours, what's the craziest thing you can go and do and come back and, and show it as a proposal? Because if you do it, you would be joining like an elite R&D lab with crazy budgets crazy partners and your salary would be like doubled or tripled depending on the budget of the lab. And so like, like the opportunities there, but the level of craziness is almost unfair. So how would you go about trying to assess talent? Um, and then ha- I, I don't know, like what, what are your guys' thoughts with that? Is that even fair to offer to like junior talent or do you just need to like, how do you find crazy? How do you find crazy? How do you find people that are just off the rails like I just want like a almost like a wild animal to just like go and if they have to 3D print something they 3D print something if they have to do something on the edge they just do it and I'm totally fine if they don't know how to do it just want yeah. someone that'll do it. I'm defer definitely to to Vin on this one first because I know he's been writing a lot about this on LinkedIn, but just one thought that that I had like I like that idea like that concept. Um, I'd probably be too dumb to apply for a job like that. But here's what I would I would suggest is have like a theme or a statement, like have like a statement that somebody can build this project around. So that way, at least you don't have 150 different projects that you can't compare to one another. Um, so maybe that's some something you can think of. Uh, Vin, what do you think? And then after Vin, we'll hear from Greg. That's a hard one because I know who you're looking for. Like I've had to hire that person before and it's usually just somebody I've come across. Like I'll have taught them in a class or I'll run into them, you know, in a conference or something like that. Those are the last two that I, I hired out. And so I know who you're looking for and I've never had to post that job. I've always kind of stumbled across somebody that fits. But if I was going to post it to try to get people to, to apply for it, I'd get creative with, you know, how I posted the job. I don't even know that I would post it as like a job on LinkedIn or, you know, any of those sites. I might just come up with a challenge, like an open challenge. Hey, you know, this would be fun, cool thing to work on. Not even say that there's a job behind it and see who runs after it. Because you're right, there's like a side of that that's not fair. And, you know, dangling the job and all the perks and everything else that could come with it, it's almost not fair to do, especially to junior talent, because yeah. they will run face first into it. And, you know, maybe it's right for them, maybe it isn't. And if you don't know them well enough, it's hard for you to make that judgment call either. Yeah. So I would almost, you know, put out a challenge, expect it to take a couple of months for people to do, you know, whatever creative challenges you can think of to throw out there. And you'll meet some people along the way. You'll be able to get to know people a little bit better. And that'll be your selection process. That'd be my best guess. Now that's, yeah, I think you're completely right that you've already run into this people, these people. You kind of know who they are. Um, and and I, I, I think I'm kind of hitting on, I hate the idea of having a lot of junior talent go and bust their asses for like three days when that that's not them right now. Cause that's not really fair either. Um, 
but I also don't have two months to figure it out. I've got like two weeks. Yeah. So. It's tough to hire somebody like that quick. Uh, that, that's a hard person to source. Cause I know exactly what you're looking for somebody who can really, who does think sideways and not, you know, the buzzword way of thinking, but I mean, truly thinks sideways and has zero fear hasn't ever failed before in their life and will legitimately throw themselves into stuff. They have no business thinking they could solve. And they're the kind of person that comes out the other end somehow with a workable solution, even if it's not the final thing, it's, it's kind of the halfway point or at least a good starting point. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I know what you're looking for. It's hard. Let's hear from Greg. Then I think Jennifer had her hand up and then we'll hear from Rena afterwards. Yeah. I, I echo what, what um, Vin is saying. And it seems like you're going to have to tailor it uh, kind of like a, some sort of uh, interview that you're tailoring uh, for the candidates. I'm assuming that just being clear in the position description itself uh, could be a start in terms of what people should expect. But I'm assuming you're looking for somebody who's going against the grain, right? So kind of like to to Vince's point, if you create some sort of competition or challenge where most conventional knowledge is thinking that, oh, this way of doing business is the right way. And you're looking for the person who will say, oh, that's bullshit. You need to it will break. There's a, there's a fault to that. I'll tell you why. Or you're kind of looking for that sweet spot of somebody who's done something crazy before and failed and understand why it failed and understand, you know, what it would do, uh, what he or she would do to, to correct it. So it's kind of hard, right? I, I don't know. The, the best thing I can tell you, maybe it's, you know, tailor that interview to kind of surface this craziness, but also be blunt in the job description that you will post out there or even employ different method to go look for these folks, where they are, where are they using uh, the world wide web? So what are the projects they worked on or things like that? So it's kind of like, you're going to have to do a combination of all of that. You know, how do you look for that person? What do you tell that person so they can be clear about, you know, what you're looking for and also what have that person done before too? And also how do you, tailor that interviewing process so you can surface these kind of craziness out of them. So it's, it's a combination of a lot of things in my opinion. The, the job description is so hard because it's literally like first month you're doing reinforced learnings on heartbeat data coming out of the ICU. Next month, you're building a custom hyperspectral camera. And like the next month, you're buying furniture at Home Depot and you're like racing out to the desert. And like, it's one of those things like the job description is almost undefined, but the obsession, I, I could bring up some of these examples, but some of the examples really aren't that important because they could change. Jennifer, you had your hand up. Uh, I don't know if that was... Yeah, I went through that type of an interview where it started out. It did have a job description. It's very nebulous and you want someone who can handle ambiguity. Um, But the point in time when you knew that you went from resume into being part of the interview was when you got an email that said, you've got 48 hours to complete this task. And and that was literally a phase of the interview. And everybody was graded on the same task, same 48 hours. Um, I actually really appreciated it and have reused that in other interview processes because it demonstrates the intensity. It was something that should have taken two months to do. Um, and that weeds through a heck of a lot of um, of the mediocre, if I can put it that way. 
So I actually encourage you to do that, but start with the um, job description and source the resumes since you have an idea of the skill sets and the level of maturity that you're looking for, um, but absolutely go into it with competition. Rena, thanks for that. Hi. Yeah. Um, I've spent quite a lot of years in, um, and forgive me, I'm from Manchester, England. I spent quite a lot of years working with students and doing entrepreneurship. One of the great things about Manchester is they're never afraid of tech at all. So uh, there's an organization in Manchester called Pro Manchester, and they have an interview stage process. It's a competition which comes around every year. They put everybody in a room for eight hours. So, and they have a stand-up session, which is they'll, they'll have five random items, a spoon, a charger lead, all sorts of things. And then they'll say, right, stand up and come up with an inventive idea with this. By the end of that day, they cluster people together and they make those individuals come up with a business concept and raise funds for a charity within that day, locked in that room. And they have to come up with their own ideas, own concepts and go with it, fly with it within a day. They've got to fly with it. Second stage is you go away on your own, come up with your own business concept, and that gets assessed. Third stage is clear pitching. So it's worth trying. That's interesting. And I think yeah. those types of events attract a certain type of person. Yeah. I mean, I spent about five years with young entrepreneurs. Um, I, I helped businesses, anything from nature walks and talks to an obese dummy which is a fully launched um, for um, NHS ambulance services, you know, for train purposes. The big thing in the UK was they couldn't move obese people. So he has this obese dummy and that's really gone far. The other thing I was just thinking of is sometimes talking to professors, you just say, who's the most interesting student you've had in the last five years or like 10 years? Please. And they, they find out like, well, actually this random kid who's now over here. <laughs> Yeah, they're the ones that the professor, well, we call them academics. Um, they're the ones that the academics never spot um, because in universities, you'll see the ones who are teachers' pets, which the academics will spot and push forward. Um, I've seen a lot of academics elevate students in the past simply because they volunteer for everything an academic asks for, whereas the most inventive one is already starting their business at university. So we have a thing called Dragon's Den in the UK and some of the entrepreneurs that came to speak. One guy took a teddy bear and put an iPhone in it, called it iTeddy and made millions. Um, <laughs> one guy had the entire rugby team doing doorman services um, for nightclubs whilst they were at university. But on graduation day, he was turning over £100,000 and thought he should start taking it seriously. So there are unique entrepreneurs, but what I used to do was run five-day boot camps for students, open up the idea, give them the ability to put a pitch forward. They were allowed on the five-day boot camp. By the end of the five days, everybody was floored because there were so many ideas thrown around the room. Oh, that's super fun. I, think, I think you're exactly right that they don't always do well in the academic setting. No, they never do. I'm like that. I'm, I'm wired wrong. <laughs> I Actually, I, I was reminded I was giving a talk at a university. This is right when deep learning hit, so they don't know anything. There's a kid on the front row. He was like in the middle of dropping out of college. And he's like, what about this? What about that? What about um, Siamese nets? And he's asking all these questions. I'm like, what? Like, 
what's going on over here? And like the market just gobbled him up and he's at Microsoft now, but like he, he dropped yeah. out. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a little bit like that because I was stood in a rugby stadium trying to convince a European funder on how to make hydrogen power from renewables energy. Now, if you knew me by discipline, I'm an accountant and a computer scientist by nature, no near power and energy. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a really bizarre way of looking at Redbox. We'll be quite chatty with new ideas if you put them in a think tank. Sounds like an awesome place to be, Taurus. But they're terrible I... at business management, though. Taurus, I had your hand up. <laughs> and um, if anybody has questions or comments, go ahead and let me know. But I saw Taurus' hand up. I don't know where he is. There you go. I'm right here. <laughs> Sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah. Ah, perfect. Well, I was just want to comment. I think like all the things have been said so far is good. Like uh, defining the job role, the you kind of do that first passing. Technically, what I did on when I was hiring a person into my organization, I was kind of looking for the same thing. I needed somebody that was better than me, uh, somebody that knew what they were doing. So what I did, I had five different cases to that I presented. So we went through the normal interview stage, just back and forth, qualifications, paperwork, all that stuff. But then I had five tasks, which are problems that I was actually facing in my day. And I gave them those five tasks and I said, please explain to me how you will resolve this. And then I brought out the good old famous flip chart. Now draw it to me. And and the reason for the drawing was to see how they were able to kind of combine the problem, trying to show it visually. And then after discuss the problem. And those interviews took time, but it also gave a very good indication of who was capable of kind of logically working on it, also presenting it and to draft it so that it made sense. And and that worked really well for me. Uh, the person I ended up hiring, um, she talked a lot of stuff. I didn't have a clue what she was saying halfway through the interview. Uh, obviously much better than me and I never regretted it to this day. And that was the kind of person that I wanted because I needed somebody that uh, I'd like to give uh, responsibility and let people get it done and she would do it. But if she couldn't, she would come back and she would have three options available for me. I couldn't do what you asked me for because it's illegal. And here are three alternatives you can choose from. <laughs> so that was just my way of trying to find that kind of person. Exactly. I mean, not in ML or AI, but in a different field. But to have that, uh, they can do things on the spot. They can think on their feet and they're able to communicate and present it and to understand what you were actually talking to them about. Ben, hopefully I have a good, good, good uh, suggestions there. Yeah, go for it, Greg. If anybody has any questions, let me know. I know there's a bunch of uh, new people here. I see I see Richard and Martin and Jacob and Arthur. So if you guys got questions, let me know. I'll go ahead and I'll uh, pull you guys up, but go for it, Greg. I just have a follow-up question for Ben. Um, if you were to rank the top or top two uh, skills from that person, would it be someone who's aware of the technologies here, able to project into the future and come up with this crazy business idea that nobody was thinking about? Or is it somebody who's able to build a proof of concept by knowing, having some technical skills, and then you go and test that and validate it, and it's good. So what are the... What is more the, the more of the proof of concept because I I can feed them with all of these projects and I just need them to do the projects where they don't they're really not that academic it's more just you're gonna run into walls and you have to break through those walls and if you can't break through you have to escalate but if you escalate and I find out that it was 
Googleable, Googleable. If that's even like, if I find out that it was something like that, then that would be very, which I've found out before with data scientists, like, like yeah, the answer is no. And then you go Google, you're like, yep. actually it's yes. You just need somebody that's resourceful. I think that's like the most underrated skill. Mm-hmm. Ever. Yeah. Resourcefulness. A, an obsessive rule breaker. Yeah. yeah. I like that. It's, it's uh, tough. It's a challenge. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah. So let's, uh, let's see if anybody else got any questions. Uh, like I said, a bunch of new faces here. Happy to see all you guys here. Mikiko's also in the house. What's up, Mikiko? How you doing? Uh, Dave, um, Nisha, Nisha and Mark, I hope you guys got your package that I sent you, the books from Gilbert I. Kellenboom. I mailed it like two weeks ago. So let's see, let's see if Canada knows how to send mail. Um, but yeah, man, if, if anybody has any questions, go for it. I'm opening the floor up. So let's see. Let's start with Richard. Richard, any questions? Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of something. Um, it's a really a data science career progression question. So I've now like run the function and built teams twice. And I am not really sure what comes next. I can't really see myself being some VP who just sits around arguing about resources in a spreadsheet all day. Um, but I'm not, I really like teaching, mentoring, leading teams. I am not sure like what, what comes next. I feel like it's less developed, less discussed, uh, than another field. I was wrestling with the same thing earlier this week, because I used to think that I wanted to be like a chief data officer, or chief data scientist. And- yeah. I, I, Yes. Or like VP innovation. But then I talk to them and I'm like, all they do is like hire a consulting firm. Like, oh, that's lame. Yeah. Like managing, you know, I think managing people is extremely messy. That's not something that I feel like I want to do. Like, I don't want to manage people. I'd rather, you know, manage capital or assets. And I mean, manage data, I guess that's managing a a asset. But yeah, I'm I'm interested to hear what people people think. I mean, uh, Ben, I see that you're unmuted. So go for it, man. Tell us your thoughts. Yeah, so I've been a chief data scientist for HireVue, built out a team. And that's fun. Like You get to handpick your talent and you go do stuff, build a product. And then I got these to do a startup. So that that can be exciting. It's a real ass kick to be... But I think I've noticed for some people, they try to take themselves into innovation labs. So after they've kind of built a team, then they get excited about, well, how do I go find like some type of like Bell Labs behavior or incubator? Because those types of places attract crazy people. Like the engineers you pull, like Data Robot, we're starting like Data Robot Labs. And the engineers that are being pulled into that are nuts. Like they're not normal people. And so that for me, um, and I, I shouldn't share this publicly, but I will. Um, at the risk of jinxing this project. But I'm doing this uh, to kind of tease you into some of the projects that you could be working on in an innovation lab. So right now I'm working on a partnership between BRP in Canada um, and NVIDIA. And we're putting together a letter of intent. They're going to go build out a custom 300 horsepower off-road vehicle. We'll get a professional athlete like Travis Petrana, Ken Block to go drive that. We'll go down, they'll have AI edge devices, Thermal cameras, faulting. We'll go down to Moog for a week. We'll invite 50 executives down. We'll drink wine. We've got huge budgets. There's AI involved there for sure, but the partnerships, the people you meet. And so for me, that's like, that's my drug of choice. And if you have these types, and so if you can find yourself in an innovation position, because you already figured out how to manage people, you already figured out how to build a product, you already figured out how to ship a product. And so I think the the end point there is be selfish, be very, very selfish about what wakes you up in the morning, what makes you up in the evening. And it may not be something that pays the bills, but if you can find out a way to pay the bills, but I, yeah, not my track doesn't work for everyone, but that's how I've been very selfish. It Actually, sounds like, like it sounds like you were you're saying like uh, focus on the kinds of people that you would get to be with yes. uh, as a form of advancement. So like, okay, like you're constantly 
not leveling up in some sort of weird networky way, but just like, oh, these are more interesting people that I really connect with. And we Bill, want it, it like they empower you to, to do better things, more things, more impact. Yeah. I've noticed for me, maybe I screwed this up for me forever. I don't like mentoring because it's, I used to like in the past, but it's like an emotional drain where if you can work with these types of people, who are the people where that energy and that respect in every week, like who are the high intense people that will feed you and allow you to level up? And the funny thing is there's a good chance they're all smarter than us and that's fine. <laughs> But they're, they're a lot of fun to work with and, and they do really. So I care much more about impact like society. That's why um, we're working on a hospital network partnership right now where we're going to be saving lives. We're going to be having medical publications and it's not academic. Like, yeah, the academic stuff, but this stuff is like in a production hospital, real people attached, patient centric. And we got video crews to send down people to interview. And so, so I think more about impact. What's the impact you can have environment society where you can die in a couple of years and know that there's a eternal impact that for good. Yeah, man. Like hard work is no substitute for who you work with and what you work on. Right. Um, I don't know if you're much of a reader at all, Mark, but uh, Mark Richard, uh, there's a book by Rashad close. <laughs> There's a book by Safi Bacall called um, Loon Shots, and, and he talks about, he breaks down these like bush veil rules for innovation. And then he talks about these, this one aspect of it's called face separation, where you separate your soldiers from your artists. And then soldiers, they're usually ones that are in like, you know, they're manufacturing, they're in marketing, per, product design, product delivery, whatever. They're the ones that are responsible for getting products on time, on budget, on spec consistently to the customers. And then there's the artists who are responsible for coming up with crazy, wacky new ideas and testing them out. Kind of like that innovation lab concept that Ben's talking about. Um, so I, I'm an artist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm clearly not given the name of the podcast. Um, but I, I mean, I'm going to punt this one over to Vin because um, I, I know he's probably got a lot to say on this, but if anybody else would like to uh, jump in on this, please go ahead and let me know in the chat. So just raise your hand. And I can call on you next. Vin, go for it. I've had pretty much every career path possible. So I can tell you what all of them are, but I can't tell you, you know, which one's the one that's going to make you happy. So I went the corporate route. You know, I did like a small business washed horribly and decided to go like 180 degrees the other direction and do the corporate route, did the ladder climbing in corporate. It's satisfying from a like level up perspective. It's almost like you're getting high scores, you know, and you can measure high score with the size of your team. You can measure it by your salary. You can measure it by your budget. You can measure it by your impact on product. You can measure it by, you know, everyone that was around me had different measurements of their score. So in the corporate route, that's kind of where it is, is, you know, you look at impact, you know, and that's almost like a secondary thing if you do the corporate advancement, corporate ladder, but some people do go down that road. Then I went down the, um, you know, I'm going to start my own thing. I'm going to do my own thing and build amazing products. And that's a lot of fun. Um, you know, hopping from company to company, just finding companies that are interested in building out products that are cool, interesting, going to use the technology in a better way. That's a lot of fun, but you run out of companies that are willing to do interesting work pretty quickly, unless you get into the strategy side, which is where I went next. And then I did strategy growth, trying to teach businesses to do interesting and monetize cool projects and products. That's a lot of fun as well, but it's a whole lot less. Like I don't touch the product as much as I'd like to. 
but if it wasn't for this role, nobody else would either. And so there's, you know, almost like a vicarious thrill to be able to say, I made part of that, or I made that possible. And so I've done all of those. And right now I'm trying to figure out sort of the, the, the new creator role where I'm a business creator. I still do the strategy side and I still build value for businesses working inside of them. But there's also this interesting thing of creating, like I'm building communities in some cases, I'm building content, you know, more of a generic creator where I'm building content, but I'm also building communities and sort of talking people through going into a different direction, whether that's in their career or thinking about how they can utilize technology in new, interesting ways. And so there's this kind of, I don't know, fourth option that's emerging now that I don't think any of us have a a great handle on in the tech field where there's almost like this technical creator that has one foot in business and one foot in, I don't know, like not influencer, but you know what I'm talking about. Community building, I suppose. What's that? Community building, I suppose. That's as close as I can get to putting words on top of it. Yeah. And I can tell you all of them were satisfying for a little while, but it's almost like as soon as you see the game, as soon as you see the mechanics behind it, it's almost like as soon as you have that revelation, it gets boring and I got to find something that I haven't figured out yet. Absolutely love that that attitude, um, Mikiko. Let's hear from you. Hey, yeah. So I've had the uh, I've had the benefit to, according to my family, job hop uh, from many different roles. Um, but essentially, like I've kind of worked in a lot, like in like as a data analyst, as a data scientist, machine learning engineer, built part of a startup, have kind of failed at it, sort of a lot, um, you know, and sort of all these different things. And I think um, I feel like the common myth in the U.S. especially is that like, and I mentioned this in the comments, but that like growth has to come from like progressing up the ladder. Um, when the reality is that I think uh, growth and enjoyment and fulfillment can come from like not just growth up the ladder. Um, in some companies, they will do a distinction between like management versus an IC track, so you can continue growing as an IC. Um, but also there is like growth of like your work. Um, so if you're, for example, working as a consultant or like developer relations, or you're doing this proof of concept work, like that's another form of growth where it's just a growth of your portfolio of projects that you can do. When I was working at Autodesk, um, we had a lot of people who <laughs> literally their job was just to be makers, like use any combination of like Autodesk software, 3D printing, 3D modeling, combine it with like machine learning, combine it with robotics. Your goal is just to showcase everything that Autodesk can do. So they were like technical contributors, but not necessarily like contributing to the internal team, right? All their entire goal was, was to just do cool stuff and, and to talk about it. So that's like a very, so there's growth of that work as well, Um, you know, but also too, like there's kind of the growth that, you know, a bunch of people are here on the call experience that of being your own sort of like entrepreneur, you know? So I think there's a lot of like, sort of like really good options and you can kind of like mix and match them however you will. And I think that's kind of really nice. But I think the the key thing is that like understanding that, you know, for a lot of people they're for them, they might like to progress up the ladder, but I think there's a lot of us who, you know, especially with quarantine COVID, like it changed my mentality where instead of constantly trying to chase these jobs and it was exhausting. Instead, I was like, what do I like realistically really like? It's like, okay, I like developing and building things like internally and like part of the product. I don't necessarily love constantly trying to figure out algorithms. And I also don't like the idea of doing like management. So, and the nice thing about working in tech is that you can actually, it's a beautiful part for, you know, for the most part uh, is if you, if all you want to do is just do like cool projects, work on cool stuff as, a, as an IC um, and even find ways to be an entrepreneur on the side, it is just totally doable. 
totally doable. So I think that's just like kind of my sort of like food for thought is that growth and progression can come from a number of different places. It doesn't have to just come from the ladder. It can also come from, um, you know, personal work and all that. And there are definitely jobs out there that, you know, opportunities, not just jobs, but in general opportunities that will line up with that. I'll, I'll say real quick too. I, I think one of the problems with jobs is all of us, most of us on this call, if you look at the activities you do during the day in a distribution, a lot of it's just garbage, just stuff where you're just like, man, like I could find someone else to go do this and they're the cheapest person on the planet. And so the thing I love is like, how do you shut off things that you think aren't possible, like answering your email or like discovery on partnerships? Like how can you shut off stuff where you truly only work on the things that you have a unique passion for and a unique talent for? And I'm a huge fan of like, I don't give a crap about my, my weaknesses. I only do if they could impact my strengths. So if I'm having trouble with project management or dropping balls on emails, that could impact something that's very important to me. But I could also just hire that away or or figure... The funny thing about businesses is like there aren't really... We think about rules and process, but when it comes to like top line budget stuff, you can just make shit up. So like if you're like, look, I actually don't want to do this and I understand that this is not something that is known or accepted in the industry, but I don't care. I have this idea to carve away useless work off of my plate. And, and I think that that could be something that you could get really excited about. How much of your day job is garbage? And it's not an insult to you. It's the reality we all deal with. Carve that garbage away and then do what you're truly great at. The shallow work. I, yeah. I get bored quickly. Uh, I get bored quickly. And also I, I always kind of measure from time to time if I'm challenged. Um, and there's always that project or those projects that I do that have a high potential for failure. And I go, oh crap, if I don't deliver, I won't get to that next level. And it's scary and it's also exciting. So if I don't feel like I'm moving in that direction to me, I'm not growing when things start to get uh, repetitive. So um, there's a lot of that. So if, if you're, if you're feeling like you're, you're doing things that are not helping you learn something new, um, you know, start looking for that, that next step that will, challenge you it's kind of like i look at my some of my projects like uh, i go crap what am i doing here um I've, I've heard you know technical folks tell me things that i i go you know i went googling him because they got you know frustrated with me because you know i was asking questions to understand trying to understand what they're saying so you know those are the things where you know when when you explore how fragile these projects are to me it's exciting because if i succeed then big then you know, is good. And uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. So uh, that's the way I kind of measure where I am. Yeah. It sounds like there's almost two paths that you can, you can go right in your career. There's one path. I mean, there's probably several more, but let me just collapse it down into two general types of paths. One path could be managing people where maybe you are now just in charge of helping people manage how they do their time or whatever, right? Like that's just labor management, using labor as a form of, of leverage. And then the other kind is much more, um, you just, you're putting much more accountability into what you do. You're taking risks, you're taking big risks under your own name. If you fail, you reap the, re- you know, if you fail, you pay the consequences. If you win, then you reap the reward. So there's these two different types of paths where one is probably more risk, more accountability, but the payoff is much more larger. And that is doing new, crazy, interesting things where maybe you're working with just a, a nuclear team, two or three people doing cool stuff and outsourcing a lot of the drudge work to maybe other people like Ben is suggesting, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. If yeah. You- I'm hearing this, yeah. the summary of like uh, the artist, sort of the experimenter and then the delivery focus. And then uh, 
sort of how much ownership you have of the product being inside or outside uh, of others' firms and then doing your own firm. So I see those, I'm imagining three axes with mm-hmm. plot points on it or something. Uh, yeah, it's pretty eye-opening. I, I enjoyed every answer because uh, to try to think of unique ways to combine those, we don't really necessarily think about them. I think I feel like a lot of the best data scientists I've met uh, have what it would be entrepreneurs in another life. But the thing is, they really like, it's kind of difficult because you don't necessarily own the data, you know, if they want to do just the analysis stuff, right? But that mindset of the, the approach of going out there and get, grabbing things and like solving whatever problem is in front of you and always pursuing new challenges, right? Great. Entrepreneurial, but there's a fundamental tension, I think, between I'm a lone wolf data scientist on my own and like actually having access to the really interesting data sets that are often trapped in companies in silos. And um, that's, I think, the tension that underlied my question. I think you guys all helped answer it. Thanks. Yeah, I think data scientists are definitely for sure intrapreneurs in a sense, right? Where mm-hmm. you can think of your management as your angel investors and you're doing new things inside of a company. But I mean, if we're data scientists, you know, if, like if, if data is an asset, we kind of are asset managers in a sense, right? Maybe we're not given, I mean, maybe some of us are lucky enough to be data scientists who are using their skills to trade options and you are managing capital. Um, that's a huge form of leverage. But if you're managing people, that's probably messy, sloppy, but we manage data, which is an asset. And I mean, that that could have definitely high leverage. Ben, go for it. Uh, I was going to say, another thing I like, Rashad, is to if I take you and if I throw you into an entirely, an entirely different department, like I'm going to put you in sales, if you haven't been there before, I'm going to put you in marketing, you're going to be drowning like the first four to six months. Be like, oh my gosh, like there's all these new jargon and terms and things they care about in process. It, but the really fun thing when you start doing that a few times, whichever one you're in, it doesn't matter what you're in. If I throw you into marketing right now, when you ramp up on the way they think about things and the way they do things, you're going to bring a unique perspective that only you can bring. Because a lot of these people here, they're like lifelong marketers. They're not going to see the world the way you see it. And that is true of any domain you're thrown into. And so I celebrate that. So I'm right now I'm in marketing. I don't know where I'm going to be in five years, but I'm having a lot of fun in marketing. Um, and then I was going to throw an example of breaking the rules. We'll see if I can actually pull this off. But like one rule, I want to meet with our senior VP of talent on Monday. And I want to propose hiring my sister-in-law for my executive assistant, which is like a big no-no. That is like, are you shitting me? Like, you can't do that for every reason under the sun because nepotism, like, can you actually fire her? Like, no, no, like I will fire her. But like, what if I'm having an affair and she reads my email? It's like, no, we already talked about that too. Like, don't worry, we figured this all out. And I don't really care about process and template and rules. Um, And that's not really an inspiring, motivating example. I'm just saying like a lot of the rules and the way people think about things aren't the required way for you to go about it. Yeah, I mean, and to add to that, like, I remember I was watching this YouTube video from this guy. Uh, I think he's on YouTube as like Google tech lead, ex-Facebook, ex-Google, ex-husband. What he, He's kind of, it's pretty funny. Like you should watch some of his videos. Um, but he pointed out something really interesting when he, um, I guess, got fired from Google or was it Facebook? I don't remember. He made a video about it um, when it happened. But he was saying that like people sort of, they have this kind of like one track mind about like labeling people in their careers, right? Like there's this idea of that you are either an entrepreneur or you are a, a company guy, gal, they, right? Um, you are a, a leader or you are like a follower. You are a teacher or you are a doer, right? And so he he pointed out that, you know, people have a lot of these sort of like kind of misconceptions, these sort of like false dualities, you know? Um, and the thing is like, you know, in your work and the work that you do, you do and how you approach your career, you can kind of mix and match them. And a lot of times it will seem very like risky at first, but it will just kind of only like pay dividends. 
like for me, for example, I'm just going to be honest. I am probably not Okay, I know I'm not the even like the top 10% of data scientists or ML engineers. I'm actually probably a, a pretty terrible engineer. Um, but and and that frustrated my mom because <laughs> she, she, she you know, she's Japanese. She immigrates to the country and all that. So she's like, why can't you just settle down at a job for three years? Just two years aim for two years. Right. Um, but for me, what was important was getting the kind of experiences I want to, to work on the kinds of projects and that pay dividends in that, like now when I go to companies, a lot of times they're looking for something different or unique. They want like a nice little sort of, um, they don't always like have to have a neat story. They, some of the roles that I, I like to target or some of the opportunities I like to target, whether they're projects, they like people that are a little bit different. They think a little different. Um, you can't just sort of tidy them up. So sometimes, you know, engaging in sort of this, like uh, going against the grain of this, like this false dichotomy of duality of the, like, you have to be one or the other. No, you could actually be all three, you know, you could be all two, you can mix and match it. You could do some formal work or you could do stuff on the side. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be that way, but it, it's really fascinating. Cause I run up against that a lot with like the older generation of my family where they're like, you do X, Y, Z to ensure life. And it's almost like they're kind of following the rules as opposed to like following the principles, which is yes, at some point you need some amount of money. Yes. At some point, obviously, you know, you need a roof over your head. Yes. At some point it would be nice to not like hate the people you're with, you know, that you work with, but there's a lot of things that are a little bit more like flexible in, in terms of how you approach it. So that's something to like always kind of ask yourself is like, are you, when you're looking at a situation or, you know, you have a decision in front of you, are you sort of forcing this like dichotomy on yourself of choice? Or is it actually something that could be more blended? Um, or, you know, you could do like multiple, like why not both, right? It's actually an excellent point um, because we do have a tendency to say it's one thing or the next thing, but actually it doesn't have to be that way, right? Um, there's, there's never a dichotomy. There's a bunch of gray area in between that you need to entertain. Um, talent stacking is, is, you know, the way to go. If, if I could summarize a bit of what Mikiko was saying, it sounded like there's a, a big push there for, for talent stacking and just becoming the kind of person that you cannot go to school to become, um, awesome. That was, and I just realized, dude, I've been calling you Richard. Your fucking name is Rashad Mad. Rashad. Yep. Yep. It's a Pakistani name. <laughs> Well, with an with an uh, English spelling. Yeah, my bad, dude. I I should have no should have seen that. Um. So, a question. Next question I got up here is actually from Eric, and then we'll go to Nisha. And if anybody else wants to just uh, hop in at any point, man, you guys just unmute yourself and go for it. Don't wait for me to call you. All right. This is just another like explain like I'm five question. So our SQL partition over. What is I? I actually don't really understand what partition over lead flag is actually doing. I think it's a window function thing. And what is being partitioned? And if you can explain it either with an example or in terms of like Excel or Python, like Pandas, that would be super. Well, I do know it's a, a window function type of thing. And I do know that you use it mostly with columns. It's it's like a group by four columns type of thing, if I can say that. But uh, if anybody can explain it, like, I like you're all five. Yeah, go for it, man. Please do. Uh, so yeah, partitioning is is equivalent to like doing a group by, but not actually reducing the number of rows and aggregating. Um, if you were to do a lag, you need a partition and order by. So ordering, uh, ordering. if you do lag lead, it's it's based on the order. And then the partition 
it restarts within each partition. So it's like group A, if you partition by like letter and you're ordering by number, let's say, then you have like your uh, column, it's like A, 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 and then one, two, three, four, five, six, or something like that. And then B, 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 one, two, three, four, five, six, if you like that. Okay. So does that make sense? So yeah. So the part, so like I said, the partition, I think the part that's going to stick with me is like it's a group by, but doesn't aggregate. It's not like aggregating. Mm -hmm. You're just like drawing. So the, when you draw that partition, is that the window? Yeah. It's like the, it's the part piece of a window. That you're like looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, window function fundamentally does that. Uh, when you say window, when it when it is a window function, right? That's like the class of functions in SQL that that uh, does group by like things without actually reducing the number of rows. Um, yeah, partitioning is how it is grouped, and then ordering it depends on what you're doing. It doesn't always apply, but um, so ordering is applied within each partition. So is the over clause the way that you specify the things that you are part the things yes. that you're partitioning yep. based on sorry bad it's like do x do x over these groups okay. cool. that's really helpful thank you so it's like here here's a column look at this column and then make some judgment on this column and return the result of that judgment into a new column type of thing if, if i was to simplify that into english ish uh, yeah man yeah Create a new column. Yes. You guys go go take Danny's course. Danny Ma has a course on SQL. Go go take that. He can probably explain it. Um, yo, uh, Nisha, you are up next. If anybody else has questions, go ahead and let me know. Uh, hey everyone, uh, I just wanted to ask, and the teams that you have worked with before, um, consisting of both analyst and data scientists, do you? happen to have a, a place for peer reviewing work. So one analyst essentially builds the project, brainstorms with their boss at the initial phase, and then goes and codes it out. And then we have the end result. Does that get peer reviewed? And if so, what kind of things do you usually look for um, when it's an analyst-based project and when it's a data science-based project? How, how do you do it? I'm just looking for... Um, how things run in other people's industry? That's a good question. I mean, I've done like legit just code reviews. Like, let me just, you know, I'll have somebody look at my code and say, hey, just make sure this makes sense. Um, but usually that tests, write tests and uh, get it sent to QA. That's typically what I do. It's not the good practice. Mark, go for it. Uh, at my job, I shadow kind of both sides, the product side and the analytics side. And so I have to wear different hats for my code review. So if I'm on the analytics side, um, typically what I'm checking for, and I first quickly assess, like, what's the priority? Like, do you need to just get this out real quick and you say, make sure there's no red flags? Or are we trying to build something scalable that we reuse again? And so I'll go through the code. And the first thing I'm going to check is like, are your assumptions correct? Are you doing any like statistical boo-boos? Um, and can we, are, are there any kind of mistakes with, with the data? And then after that, the, the other things I'm checking is like, all right, can you, can you, are you writing like our code that's like easy to read and try and do some like coaching or mentoring um, for, for my colleagues on that? Um, and then also like any times like, hey, like your code, like repeating a bunch of times, like here's a great place to play a, put a function or something like that. And then especially because we're a startup, we're trying to like scale our insights. I'm like, hey, I keep on seeing these uh, these uh, these uh, analyses real quick. Like, this would be a great place to create a function that we can use for like our own internal packaging. And then going on to the the product side, 
Um, that's when I'm more so getting code review because I'm, I'm still learning on the, on the software engineering side. But what I'm getting for, for that side, the code review I'm receiving is, um, you know, am I following software best software engineering best practices? Um, am I making sure that I'm keeping things modular um, for that? Am I integrating with their code base uh, correctly? Um, am I running unit tests <laughs> uh, for that? Um, and then what they're really, really focused on is like readability and maintainability of the code. Um, and so like, if someone had to, had to go look at my code or like someone's on call and it broke, um, can they quickly assess it? And that's what they're more so caring about. So that's from my job at a startup. That's the perspective I'm looking at. Uh, Vin, let's hear from you. And then uh, Mikiko, sorry, sorry, you, Mikiko, if you want to go right after Vin. Why don't you do Mikiko first? Okay. And then I'll, cause I'm going to probably over answer the heck out of this question. So let me go last. Yeah, for sure. Makiko, go for it. Yeah. So, um, okay. So first thing is that it's, it's always good to have like a standard template or process for, um, how you're evaluating work. Uh, so typically when I evaluate, uh, the work of a data analyst, um, the most important part is that typically analytical work, it's meant to answer business questions. Um, and more importantly, when you present it, uh, I have yet to have an experience where the business partner did not challenge me on, first off, uh, the definitions that I used, the uh, how I calculate the metrics, um, the data, um, and then uh, fourthly, how I incorporated sort of like additional business logic. Um, so those are the the four things. Um, with, with data analytic work, it can be a little bit tricky because people have a number of ways for how they present it. So uh, Typically, it's good to, um, you want to have a place to version control your uh, SQL queries or your, your code. That's really important in Git. Um, you know, secondly, I, I'd like to say we write unit tests uh, on data analytic work, but that would be a lie. Um, that would be great, but I'm going to be honest, it doesn't happen a whole lot. Um, but what does need to happen, though, is typically if you are doing analytic work and because you're communicating with business partners, um, usually there's going to be some kind of, you know, dashboard or uh, visual analysis. So having some kind of rules uh, or not rules, uh, guidelines or principle, good principles um, figured out before that is really helpful. If you're doing a dashboard, you always want to check to see, first off, are the filters actually working? And you want to compare the values that you're getting against like certain common, um, not common use cases, but either through a matter of spot checking. So for example, if you're doing a sales report, you want to compare like the sales report in like Tableau to what the sales numbers are in like Salesforce, right? You should always be doing that kind of due diligence. Um, it would be nice if people went through that entire checklist all at once, but typically they don't. Um, but those are the things you look for when you're doing like a data science project or um, like a model. So if it's experimentation, um, we always ask that we have the experimental design connected, like attached. Like we need to understand like what was the methodology? First off, did you calculate the power sizes? Like did you cal calculate power and like the sample size? Did you figure out the like uh, assignment uh, scheme? Um, you know, what metrics or analyses were you using? Were you intending to use? Um, you know, that stuff is important um, on top of some of the other things. And if you're doing a data science model, um, it's very easy to just take data and like throw it at a model. It's incredibly easy. Um, so, you know, in the beginning of time when people were not like as sort of aware of, you know, the pitfalls of data science modeling, uh, you could kind of get past with that, um, but that's really bad practice. And so uh, the things you want to definitely look at are first off, making sure you're, um, you understand what's going on in the data. Um, 
because sometimes, for example, you can have data that is repetitive or messy, or you can have data leakages. So having an understanding of how that was handled. Uh, secondly, is definitely testing the code. Um, as like Mark talked about, um, that's like super, super important. Um, and then I'd say thirdly is uh, the evaluation metrics that were used. Um, yeah, those are those are the things I like typically check. But I'd say that the main core differentiator between like what you would check for a data science project versus a data analytic project is the communication medium that you're using. Um, for data science projects, it's nice that there's some kind of interpretability tool, but the reality is a lot of interpretability tools, even then there's a little bit of like magic going on underneath. So you can't say that they're like fact, but when you're communicating with a business partner, um, you know, just because you think something is very intuitive does not in fact mean that it is intuitive. And more importantly, um, if you make assumptions, you need to like connect the assumptions in a very like logical way. Um, yeah. It sounds like a lot of this stuff fits under the umbrella of like ML ops or AI ops types, types of things. So that's definitely very, very interesting. Vin, I know you said you want to go last. I'm going to go to Greg first. And then we'll hear from, from Ben. And in the meantime, I've got time for one more question after this. So if anybody has a question, go ahead, put it in the chat, uh, send me a, a message. Let me know, Greg, go for it. And then we'll go to Ben. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I'm more of a, uh, on the output side of it where I don't really care about the code, uh, where I work with the person building the code. But what I do is take a look at the output and validate that it's right. And understanding who the final audience is going to be in terms of downstream, you know, uh, subscribers to whatever I'm building in terms of product. Uh, so for example, I have use cases where I've created brand new pipelines and I've partnered with, you know, data engineers who are grilling me about business processes to make sure that if we're adding, you know, this, this, this column, these attributes into this giant, uh, uh, you know, table that we're storing into, you know, Redshift or whatever, uh, we want to understand why these table, why these columns were selected. So uh, that person, we have a mechanism where um, we're creating visibility and properly documenting what that output needs to be. And also for each and every columns, I'm writing the business logic behind it, where the source of truth data needs to come from. And also once, you know, we have that, we test the code to look at the output to see what it looks like. And then if it doesn't look right, we would kind of um, uh, figure out, you know, what to change and uh, uh, until we're satisfied with the results. And then, you know, the key to that too is setting up some sort of mechanism for what we call, I mean, you're, you're hearing those um, um, uh, automated tools now that's called observability. Uh, to me, uh, data changes in these kind of pipelines because business rules might change or business processes might change. And uh, you're, you're, you're realizing what you were collecting before is no longer uh, being collected the proper way. So you want to have a, a way to kind of capture those and make corrections. But at the end of the day, um, on the, at the front end, if you're the person coding, you have to have great relationship with the people who will use your tool or your product and making sure that the, the documentation is sound. And when any changes happen, that document is also updated to reflect the most uh, uh, recent changes, including the code change that you do. So a lot of documentation, a lot of tracking, a lot of experiments. Uh, before we get to Vin, to hear from Vin, I, I just noticed that Christian is here. Shout out, Christian. Uh, I know you got some good news to share with us. So uh, stick around so you can share that with us. Uh, but Vin, let's, let's hear your response to this. Uh, Mikiko killed it and then Greg lit it on fire. That was amazing. 
Uh, I was <laughs> the only thing I would mention that I don't think got brought up is that if you're on a full life cycle project, because it sounds like you're on kind of the analytics side of it. If you're on a full life cycle project, this is a gated process. So reviews happen in stages. So you'll get, you know, a little bit of your project done and then there's a review and you'll have someone either green light or red light it, which means that they're going to look at the project and say, okay, you're finding something interesting. I think this model is actually onto something or I think your approach is valid. And then they're going to move you on to the next phase. So typically you have a little bit of data gathering and hypothesis creation. You'll present that if the review board thinks, okay, you're onto something or just the team thinks you're onto something, you go on to the next phase where you'll do experimental design. You'll get, sometimes that'll get reviewed because there are some fields where you can't run an experiment without someone actually overseeing it and giving it a green light. So you may have a, you know, a gate there. And just, so think of this, you know, without getting to every single gate and boring everybody, but just think of this as a gated process. And that's really how it should be. It shouldn't be like a big bang at the very end when you're about to deliver. It really should be something that's happening on a regular basis as you reach a phase or a step in the workflow where it's kind of a critical jump. You want to have a gated process. And that's really what you should expect in, in the larger sort of more more complete projects or in more mature organizations, you'll start seeing that gated process come in. Nisha, hopefully that gave you some great insights, a lot of good answers there that uh, I know I'm going to run back and listen to at least more than once. Um, Nisha, was that, was that good? Awesome. Cool. Christian, man, congratulations. I know you got some big news for us too. This is a lot of, a lot of good news today, man. I'm excited. I'm excited to hear this. Christian, go for it, man. Yeah, no, today, uh, kind of plus I mentioned that earlier, but uh, got my acceptance for the Georgia Tech OMSA program. And so that was cool. I've been waiting on that for a little while. And uh, it's a different different phase for me. You know, I've got the business background, but I thought I, I could add a little more rigor on the data side. And, uh, you know, thanks to this group here and, and others, it's been a just kind of an increasingly enjoyable learning experience. So I'm going to be leaning on y'all probably even further as I get in over my head with some of this stuff. So thanks to everybody here. Man, congratulations. I absolutely love that, dude. I'm, I'm excited for your feature and excited for all the amazing things we're going to do, man. Um, so it doesn't look like there's any more questions. So you guys, thanks for hanging out. Um, guys, uh, I, I want to say, look, I've, I've interviewed far too many white dudes this month and literally since the beginning of the year. So if you know any women out there who are either astrophysicists, uh, philosophers, especially logicians or ethicists, um, anybody that knows about quantum computing, just anybody that is published a book in, in some of these domains please let me know uh if you if you know them personally put us in contact i'd love to get them on the show um you know just want to get some more representation so so again specifically looking for for some astrophysicists some philosophers ethicists logicians or um anybody that's into quantum computing so please holler at me if you uh, know anyone that that fits the bill i'd love to get them on the show um question here i'm not going to cut it off just yet i just saw a question coming at the ultimate last minute from jacob jacob go for it take the floor um hi everyone uh, this is like my i don't know i've been coming though like just swapping it out so um so my brother is civil engineering i decided to leave my job last year to transfer to data science and lucky enough for me i got an internship with a prop tech startup in the uk unpaid though sorry about the noise at the background i'm um, not a pass i'm just the narrator um it has it has been quite enjoyable. So I do more of data research. So my intention was going there, learning about data visualization, SQL, and all of that. But um, I think it actually gave me um, a leverage to start by learning about data um, properly in terms of integrity and um, disability. But I feel like I'm not doing 
So I spent like four months. I'm not paid and I have to get data to do the work. I'm not being paid for. And um, the experience is not that, uh, it's not forthcoming like at anticipated and so i'm at the crossroad where i have to pay my bills and i don't have something going on the side and actually i'm not being paid i apply for a couple of jobs so i keep getting rejected some i get the interview but i don't get past the first stage so i'm kind of frustrated so i actually don't know what to do at this point so yeah. i don't know so Audio is coming in a little bit sketchy there, so I'm just going to kind of summarize what you're saying. So you're transitioning to data science, trying to get a job. It's super frustrating trying to get the entry-level job. Been going on a bunch of interviews, and things are just not – everything's bricks, right? You can't you can't, can't get, get, get one in. Um, yeah. So I, I, all I can say, man, is keep applying. You have to keep, keep attacking. Keep sending more resumes out because it's a numbers game. Because here's the thing, though, right? as part of the interview process, there are levers that are within your control that you should optimize for, right? Just submitting a application through a job portal itself, um, you're just kind of leaving it up to chance that the reviewer is going to pick your resume amongst a thousand other resumes and then decide to call you and proceed to the you know, with the process. If you can try to identify technical recruiters, higher level managers in data science for that company on LinkedIn, and send them a really well-written message highlighting what you can do for them. Or if you can't find them on LinkedIn, well, I mean, let's say they're just not active on LinkedIn. You don't hear back from them on LinkedIn. You can hedge that uh, bet by looking for the company email address in hunter.io and trying to get their email address and sending a well-crafted email message. But essentially anything to get yourself noticed after you hit apply through the corporate website. Um, so don't leave it a chance to have your resume picked. Um, go out there, reach out to people and send well-crafted message just to, to let them know of your interest. Uh, let's hear from Rashad on this one. Uh, yeah, I remember what this felt like. Uh, I had a neuroscience background and I had no job experience. I did a four-month stint in inside sales when I started. So um, it's funny because those skills actually helped with what Harpreet is saying right now, which is uh, to do a well-crafted message, target it, and then reverse engineer the company's email address and send them emails. So when I was trying to break into data science, I didn't have a boot camp or anything particularly relevant behind me, but uh, I did have like, you know, I was doing stuff and I could talk about it. So I crafted emails. I found, you know, I reverse engineered their email addresses. I didn't use LinkedIn really at the time. And uh, as I recall, in, in 2016, I got like one out of three people to at least be like, yeah, I'll talk to you for 15 minutes. I would frame it like semi-informational, semi like, this looks interesting. Like, I think I could help. Um, generally, if the person doesn't respond to that, it's fine. It means that you they probably wouldn't want to mentor or help you grow anyway. So screw them, <laughs> go somewhere else. Um, you can think of yourself as the selector. Um, think of yourself as the selector. And, and what you're doing is that you're never going to get 100% hit rate no matter what, but it's okay because if you do get hit rate, that means you're you're actually got this subset of people who would, who would care and would respond to like a targeted pitch that you put research and time into. So that's okay. And then then you talk to them. Uh, as as it so happens, I did that, got the interviews. Then uh, I would fail the technical test, but I learned a lot. And then eventually, like it was it got through. So um, yeah, I would vouch for from personal experience the uh, targeted outreach approach. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about the business a bit, mentioning a bit of like why you're what you've done is relevant to them. And then like ask for 15 to 30 minutes. That's what I did. There's many, many levers that are within your control when it comes to the job search process. Uh, The thing is just to remove things that are not in your control, right? So you can't control whether or not your actual resume gets picked. You can't control whether or not 
you know, they close the position. There's so many factors that, that just not in your control, but optimize for the ones that, that are in your control. Right. So the biggest leverage I think in that situation is doing these type of reach outs, but let's hear from Mark to see what Mark has to say. Yeah. So I, uh, this is the approach I, I took. I, I was talking to Russell. I don't know if he's on today about uh, the approach where I essentially take on the persona that I'm a business of one. And instead of looking for a job, I, I have this skill set and I'm trying to solve a company's problems and selling my services. Um, and then with that mindset, I, I use what's called a sales funnel. Um, so there's various steps within the sales funnel. And so uh, the last time I was laid off, instead of putting out job applications, I did two things. I created content on LinkedIn to drive engagement, to see visibility. And so people saw that I was looking for a job and then people would send me recommendations um, for that. And then the second component was kind of what Rashad was saying was creating very targeted LinkedIn emails. But um, kind of to add to add on to that kind of the strategies I would do is like, all right, what type of company am I looking for? I'm looking for company of this size, work on these type of problems. And then I would identify who's the decision maker for a position, either that's created or not created. And I would identify that decision maker through some LinkedIn stalking basically and find like, all right, um, I want to be into like the insights department. Who's the head of insights for XYZ company? Figure out what would be a great pitch for them and very, give a very targeted pitch. Um, and the key thing is like, it's not, it's not about like, hey, I want a job. It's more so, hey, I see you're trying to solve these problems. Your job posting or why I've seen your blog said this. Here's my skill set to make me the best damn person to solve your problem and really sell it that way. And so um, the reason why I like the sales funnel component is that now you get actually levers to really think about it. So I'm like, all right, how's my, um, you know, um, I'm blanking on the names of the sales funnel, but like uh, awareness of my brand, right? Awareness of my skill set that people want to talk to me. Um, when I'm doing the informational interview, you know, am I qualifying this lead um, where like actually we're a good fit? Um, the next step is like doing the interview. Am I really be able to describe the value I'm providing to um, to the company, right? And then the final step is like the deal. So like being able to negotiate. And the reason why I like that format is because then I can start tracking like, huh, I'm not really doing well here at this part. Let me ramp up my efforts and focus my efforts here. Um, if I am messing up on like the technical interviews, right? Now I know like I'm being dropped off. There's a leak in this part of the funnel. This is where I'm going to go start focusing on and allow me to stop of running all these directions, be very targeted of what like I'm going to focus on to get the job. I absolutely love that analogy about the sales funnel. That's really, really good. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for that. Um, and when it comes to LinkedIn stalking, I would add a little tip here. You know, when you go to somebody's profile on LinkedIn, they have the activity section. Make sure you peep that activity section. If somebody hasn't done any activity in like 90 days, that's probably a waste of an in-mail credit. So don't go after them. Look for people who are more active. You know, maybe they're active within a few days or within a few hours. That's the prime target because if somebody's not active for days or weeks at a time, your hit rate's not going to be that great. Um, I, I wonder if you can, like, I wonder if anybody's actually done this, like just buy ad space on LinkedIn to, you know, to, to promote your candidacy and you can probably target people in markets. And I think you can probably target keywords um, as well. And if you can add in hiring as one of the keywords, that would be interesting. Try to try to advertise yourself um, that you are open to work using LinkedIn ads. Let's hear from Makiko um, on this. I know Makiko has a lot of experience helping people transition into data science. Yes, absolutely. At one point in time, Harper and I worked together at Data Science Dream Job, yes. where we, you know, connected promising, aspiring data scientists um, yeah. and helped them develop the skills. But um, so I would say that number one, um, 
definitely focus on optimizing your bottleneck. Um, so I've kind of made like two or three pivots. I mean, I guess maybe three if you include unemployment, pivoting away from unemployment. So that might be a pivot. But I've made kind of like three pivots in my career. And, um, you know, every time I was doing a bunch of activities because I thought I needed to. Um, and when you're first starting out, you kind of you kind of do need to balance some kind of exploration with um I don't want to say exploitation, um, but trying new things while doing the things that work, doing more of those. And the thing is, when people are getting their first data scientist job, um, so I've been on the interview panel for a couple of different roles, um, like at different companies, hiring data analysts or data scientists, you know, a lot of the candidates look really the same. Like you would be shocked at how like a hundred resumes can just bleed into like five resumes. So anything you can kind of do to like differentiate yourself uh, is is definitely useful, especially like as Mark talked about, you know, like like targeted reaching out, like that can be a really a great way to differentiate yourself um, because you people can like place a face in like sort of a story, you know, um, to paper, which is really nice. Um, you know, so like the, at the beginning, it's kind of weird. Cause it's like, you have like hundred resumes, everyone sort of looks the same. And then you kind of have to figure out like how to choose. And if you sort of already have some kind of interaction, um, with those resumes or with the people behind them, then that really, really helps. Um, and then the second part, right. is like optimizing your bottleneck. So it seems like you are getting some callbacks, which is great. Um, you know, so one place you could still optimize maybe is, um, is is your resume slash LinkedIn profile. I know for me, for most recently, when I was looking for an MLE job, you know, I was sending out my data scientist resume and I just got nothing, just rejection after rejection after rejection. So I got it. So I was taking this full stack deep learning course. One of the TAs, he does work as an MLE. You know, I was kind of posting the Slack channel going like, oh my God, I'm like, I have no hope. He reached out and he said, let me like look through it. And he was just like, look, this is a very data science resume. He's like, it's a great data science resume, but it is a shit like engineer resume. So he helped me with that. So even if, for example, you could reach out to other data scientists too on LinkedIn, um, you know, even, especially if they are with companies that are hiring. So even if, they don't refer you, they can at least tell you like, hey, this is kind of like what the hiring team is looking for. So I would say like those two things are really important um, is, you know, do what you can to sort of differentiate yourself because in the beginning, everyone looks the same up until they start developing like two to three years of body of work. Um, and then the second part, you know, is like optimizing your bottlenecks. So for example, if you haven't gone to the technical interviews, I would not be necessarily spending all your time preparing for those. I would be spending time preparing on like generating more opportunities and more interviews. Um, once you start getting to the technicals um, and you feel like you have like that first stage of the pipeline, you know, the first first stage of the cycle going, then you can kind of like, you know, change your focus and kind of gradually like move it up, you know, um, that's because that's like the other part too, right, is that for me, it's every single job search and as a data scientist, as a data analyst, as an ML engineer has never not been stressful. It's always been stressful because everyone wants a million things. Um, and if you chase after the the 10 million things that they want, it's so easy to burn yourself out. You need to kind of reserve some of that mental and emotional energy for yourself, you know? And so being able to pick the, the most impactful stage um, and the figuring out the most impactful channels will really, really help a lot. And just be kind of reasonable with your expectations when you apply for a job. Realistically, any single application that you send for, uh, you probably have like a 1% chance of ending up with the job in the end, right? So just temper your expectations with every single resume that you do send out and update your probability of landing the job as you progress throughout the process, right? Um, but, you know, always kind of be rationally optimistic, right? Um, 
you want to think of the future as a probability distribution that way. Um, but Jacob, hopefully you got some some good uh, insights there. It's a numbers game, man. Keep plugging away. Uh, if you want to come in on the Sunday office hour, we can take a look at your resume, do a little bit more analysis on that. Um, and yeah, if anybody was interested in data science dream job, let me know. I can give you guys a 70% discount on that. Um, so Jacob, thanks again. Great question. Uh, now remember folks, I need help finding, because like I said, far too many white dudes on the podcast recently. I need to break that chain. So I'm looking specifically for women who have, you know, astrophysicists, game theorists, philosophers, ethicists, um, logicians, behavioral scientists, uh, preferably ones that written a book, that have written books. Um, I'd love that. Shout out to Mark for getting me connected with Liz Fossling, by the way. Um, really, this book is fucking amazing. This book is so good, man. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for, for getting us in touch. I really, really appreciate that. I'm excited to be talking to Liz in a couple of weeks. Um, next week, I'm talking to, to author of, of this book here. Uh, well, co-author, the smaller font name. Um, but looks like there are no other uh, questions. So guys, um, looking forward to seeing you guys next week. Um, hopefully uh, you guys are back next week. Hopefully everybody's getting vaccinated and doesn't leave me once, uh, <laughs> once everybody's safe and can go to pubs again. Um, take care, guys. Remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone.